0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Jeff Spees, Senior Planner at the civil engineering and landscape architecture firm lamp Rhineerson. A conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Jeff Spees is the Senior Planner at Lamp-Rynearson and works with a team of landscape architects and civic engineers to leave a legacy of lasting impact and creating more equitable communities. He is most interested in chasing his curiosities and continuing to learn from the communities of which he gets to serve. Jeff likes to spend his time running and thinking, riding his bike, and experiencing live music. Jeff is actively involved in the civic life of Omaha by serving on various community boards and engaging with neighborhood-based projects. Jeff is a member of Leadership Omaha, Class 39, apparently the best class ever, some doubt that, and a Midlands Business Journal 40 Under 40 recipient. Jeff is married to an educator, Melanie, and together they have three girls and enjoy their time in the little Italy neighborhood near downtown Omaha. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I'm not sure if this is too whimsical uh, as a stunning point, but I do want to ask you, what is your favorite utopia? And so far as I can call it a favorite, a favorite dystopia?
1: You know, I, I would say that's a good question. The utopia that is maybe my favorite um, would actually be um, somewhere that I've visited, and that's Medellin, Colombia. And um, it it is a place that seems to have a sense of shared ownership and responsibility about its own community, and there is a strong connection between uh, the people and the public sector to some degree and the private sector and the private sector's responsibility, maybe involvement in the long-term viability of that city. That's evidenced through their design of of innovative uh, public transportation. It's a very hilly uh, community. And so there are things like escalators that um, help bring people down from the mountains down into uh, kind of central space as well as you know, cable cars, the responsibility around like energy and sustainability in Medellin uh, is is clear as well, and the, everyone seemed to be very connected, and that kind of represented a little bit of um, maybe like a, a Garden Cities uh, approach, which was a you know a theory in the early 1900s, um, late 1800s by Ebenezer Howard. It was one that people were. These kind of concentric circles, these six area zones, more or less uh, surrounding a center space, all kind of connected through rail. And um, it was a theory that it was also shared ownership of land and dividends were returned back to the community. Um, Medellin was a place that seemed to be trying to put in practice, at least in my drawing of a connection between an actual planning theory that was sort of utopian in its uh, vision in the 1800s to Something that is you know being implemented the last twenty or thirty years in a city like Medellin, which had its share of issues uh, in Colombia in you know the like second half of the twentieth century. Uh, so to turn that around by community engagement at its core was um, you know pretty cool to see. So you know that maybe also reveal a little bit maybe what a, dy- a dystopian vision of a community would be for me and. I would say that it's not that hard to find. In fact, like I see it uh, often, and that's where I'm drive. Usually in a car, and I'm passing a Chili's sign and an Applebee's sign, and a Best Buy sign, and um, you know, and a car wash sign. You know, essentially, like you could be anywhere. There's parts of Omaha that I could be describing. That could also be. Uh, a description of suburban Cleveland Ohio for all I know like but that's just the fact that like it could literally be anywhere there's nothing distinct or interesting about those places and they extract wealth from a community so not only maybe wealth from the people but also in any, in any kind of cultural asset you know they seem to draw instead of um, contribute and um, extract a sense of vibrancy or vitality to a community there's nothing distinct about it. They also seem to take up a lot of land and dependence upon a vehicle.
0: Your use of language and the characteristics you're describing about Medellin, but then also this sort of dystopian vision for uh, Anywhere Terrible USA. I'm going to pick up on some of that language in a second. But before then, I take you into unpacking a little bit the description of terrible places and what could be a description of great places. I did want to ask you about your current role. So you are senior planner at Lamp-Rinearson. What is your role and what does Lamp-Rinearson do?
1: Yeah, Lamp-Rinearson has been a part of the Omaha community since 1959. Mostly worked on you know, with civil engineers. So you know, there might be roadways or um, land development, um, public infrastructure improvements and you know that was what they had were doing for you know the better part like 1959 through early 2000s and um and then uh on the coast landscape architects um you were helping create and observe and design public spaces in the omaha area we didn't have a, a lot of landscape architects there were some but not not a lot and um so lampre added landscape architecture to its uh, services. And um, that's the team that I'm on. So I'm the, I'm the only planner for Lampre-Neerson. And I, the small group that I work with are, are landscape architects. And we work on, sometimes um, it might be projects that are you know, public plazas and um, community colleges, helping design pedestrian oriented kind of malls within campuses. Um, work on parks master plans. And so in creating parks and open space along the riverfront, um, working on projects like Brownville, Nebraska, a small village in which 12% of the village are working artists. And we have a riverfront there that has an abandoned dredge from the Missouri river, Uh, the captain Meriwether Lewis from the 1930s that is on this riverfront. And we're working on designing a new concept for that riverfront area. Those are the kinds of projects that I get to work on, these projects that are, sometimes they might be in Omaha, like the North Omaha Trail is a project we're working on. Um, And uh, then working with the city of Bellevue and designing a master plan for all of their park system uh, to giant projects like the the Henry Dorley Zoo, working at the Henry Dorley Zoo, to, like I said, the small village of 120 people in Brownville, but the commonality between things I get to do is really focused on people and observation and designing spaces that uh, is really um, the foundation of it is the use that, you know, people are displaying today and trying to build upon what is already there, the assets that are there or how folks are using a space. So from that, I guess, just People that are closest to the issue or, you know, the the place, then those are the experts and it's trying to just be a good facilitator, ask good questions to draw out why, if people are using a certain space a certain way, and then connecting that knowledge locally to resources and methods of implementation.
2: So many seeds to sow When the harvest comes in It will be Time to share what we have grown We were having the time of our lives When we started Everything was groovy But I'm noticing lately We've been half-hearted West Side Story
0: really pleased you talked about how people use and exist in spaces. And I am curious how you go about, you know, approaching something that is a space that could be truly grand and massive like a city, but at the same time having to appreciate that it's human beings, you know, the the users of this
1: area. Mm. Our, our CEO is Nancy Predahl. And Nancy has a vision for Lampre and that Some of this comes from the the previous uh, president, Mike McMeekin, Uh, his concern is mostly, well, everybody's concerned about climate, sustainability, and environmental stewardship of resources. And that has really been passed and expanded upon with Nancy Friedal. And um, we need to be thinking about the decisions that we are able to be a part of making with community have long lasting impact generations. So be careful before coming in with a large-scale intervention. And that means taking time and building rapport and trust with the community and thinking of through what does equity mean exactly to this community. And that scales at an intersection, you know, designing a, just a small sidewalk uh, on a, a certain corner to thinking about how you plan and design an entire community um, with equity in mind and that viewpoint of those that are would use this, that they need to be at the center of designing the solutions. That works, again, at a small scale or large scale to a certain degree. The way that I think try to think about it as much as possible is connection and access. So how would someone feel connected to this place or be physically connected? Like how do they get here? Um, and once they are here, what is that experience like for them? A the community is made up of great distinct neighborhoods for sure. And people should have a choice on how they get to any of those places and feel welcome and included once they arrive. So looking at the natural systems, you know, greenways and trail systems, the pedestrian is first. Most people, it's our primary mode of transport is some type of whether it's um, you know physically walking or a walker or you know wheelchair um, getting around without the dependence upon the car is um, the most important sort of consideration to be made so what is that human experience when they're here what do they see and observe and experience and how do I how do we maybe expand upon that so that, I guess, is how we try to do it is from the human, kind of humanistic standpoint.
0: When you were talking earlier about Medellin and also about this dystopian vision of anywhere America, the kinds of descriptions and images you were conjuring for me and the language you were using was of gardens and a sense of private investment in the social sphere and the betterment of that The ability for humans to interact with the space physically, meaning they could walk about and move about in that space. Conversely, sort of these dystopian places were geared around vehicles and were indistinct and were extractive in some way, um, and not just purely financially, but did not contribute, but in fact uh, withdrew resources from a sense of community. And I'm repeating that language back in some ways because I I want to ask the question then, what is it about spaces that make them human? What is it about a space that makes it accessible and connective to humans?
1: There is a program. uh, It's a small snippet on NPR periodically called Stardate. And what I really like about that is it makes me feel so small and insignificant in a way, like this universe is expansive and I get to be, have a very small role in that. Uh, so I have a responsibility to help contribute, um, I guess to the creation of a space that's meaningful. Um, that's what, however small it might be, just like I'm small in the universe. So, um, how do we, I guess that it makes me think about, it's how I think about space a little bit is, um, that, I can interact with a space. Uh, It's inviting because if I want contemplation, I can contemplate. If I want to connect with others or observe people, the ability to be seen and see others is really crucial to a space. So that's, I think, what I try to um, observe, how, how others are seen or you know, being seen um, in, in a space. And that, to me, goes back to, um, you know, they feel connected, whether that's at a large scale um, or a small pocket park in a space um, or a, an entry plaza into a building. Um, just that you feel both connected intimately to this space, but also connected, again, to this larger environment like Stardate. Like, I'm, I have a small role in this in a giant universe, um, and I guess I think about space in that that way.
2: On the graves, in the cracks of a thousand leaves, somewhere in between, our past and our future rolling over, all the dividing things, are you still listening? Want to be heard by you slow fall into the Indian Sea where the cold and the hot meet
0: In your bio, and you've used this word equity earlier in our conversation, uh, but you you talk about equitable communities. What does that actually mean?
1: Mm. I don't know. That's just a word everybody puts on in their uh, in sentences today. Uh, I'm like kind of kidding, but not. Um, you know, it it is what it's like. Just the air now. It's just a you see it everywhere. But what does it really mean? And um, seriously. It, there's a maybe, you know, I think about design and, and planning is, okay, so there, there's a, a state of a place today and a desired future, and there are alternatives to how we get to that future, like kind of as core, like that's what planning is, like what's our goals and objectives? What are the alternatives to get there? How do we get to this vision? I also think about it as an intervention something is going a certain direction today and there will be some force that changes that. And how does that force, and that the force could be natural elements like physical constraints to space or, you know, social, political components. Um, So to that, I think about as an intervention, equity I think is a, a recognition and a, and in some ways a opportunity for reckoning that the way in which we have design spaces and who is at the table for those conversations have almost universally been, um, you know, people like me, a white man that's straight and a, a privilege. So to me, the, the equity to creating an equitable community is first that acknowledgement that there have been wrongs in the past by planning and policy and decision makers and, To not presume that just because I recognize that that's happened in the past and I have some language to understand it today and I can say things like we want to create equitable communities like that's not enough to like check the box or get me off the hook, it is holding me accountable to making certain that I have building trust and rapport and learning from other communities and listening and actually I don't want to use I think about power in when I think about equitable communities and who has it and how how do I give up some power um, or recognize and elevate the power that already exists there and I'm not coming in trying to extract power just to um, to be a part of a design or a plan but instead harness the like listen and be just a good servant of the power that already exists in that community. Think about think that's sort of how I think about equitable communities. You know, at Matt when I worked I worked for the for MAPA for some time and the Metro Area Planning Agency, and there there was um, an article about the the development of Highway 75 in the 70s. The Omaha World Herald covered it favorably that the community was supportive of Highway 75 being coming in. And um, MAPA had a board meeting in the 70s about this. And Ernie Chambers came to the meeting and said, our community is against this. We like, we're not interested. And the Omaha Star was writing about this from a, a place of, we are not interested in, we, we can tell you what will happen to our community if this is put in. And just the power dynamic between Omaha World Herald and Omaha Star and what's covered. And um, so MAPA was against it because the community voice was what they were trying to respect. Um, So that pattern is no one is surprised by it. And so that's like with what's going on today.
0: You mentioned earlier that there may be natural forces that are creating change in environments. And that's why we need to be attentive to equity in our community planning but also maybe social and political forces too, the factor that we're dealing with at the minute across the globe is the pandemic. And I'm wondering if the pandemic and its implications have directly impacted the work you do, or if they have conceptually changed how you think about what planning needs to think about and consider uh, looking forward.
1: One thing I think I, that I appreciate that the pandemic has changed some conversation about is well, self-driving cars seems to dominate conversation and planning for it still is a significant portion of a lot of agendas of meetings. And um, the pandemic has sort of usurped that to say, well, there's there are other more serious um, considerations to be thinking about. And the fact that maybe I would say self-driving car just creates bigger problems. So now I can live an hour away, but that's, that's not here. Um, I say that because the the pandemic has changed how we, I think, think about planning spaces. One for open spaces and parks and trails. Uh, these are a place of you know safe refuge and they are a critical piece of infrastructure in a community. And that recognition that is not unique to Omaha, that, that, that issue, that, trails and open space and parks are essential. Every community that I'm a part of is talking like uh, honoring that and then putting investment into parks and trails. So that, you know, that has um, changed the conversation. And that's where I'm saying like in some ways I'm replacing the conversation about self-driving cars for actual, if you are thinking about the development of a space, the buildings and the makeup of buildings and what, the mix of uses within a site. Yeah, that has certainly changed the retail mix and office mix and how how many square feet do we need to plan for, for office when I can telecommute now. Um, but it's also changed how neighborhoods, some of the ways we think about neighborhoods is you have this workforce now that's spending more of their time at home and they want to take a break from their work environment and take a walk. So you're also thinking about the neighborhood as a part of your work day too, like designing it for the employer employees that are living instead of a bedroom community, even if it's in a you know, neighborhood that's older, um, you're still thinking about the neighborhood from the fact that there are more folks that are working from home than before. So how do you design the neighborhood to account for that so um, it has physically I mean like literally changed the way we think about both the open public space and more of the neighborhood this you know the, the communities as well and uh, the real estate industry for sure like the some ways the lack of um, office space that's being dedicated just to strictly office work um, and now instead maybe more hoteling in the workspace, and uh, shared uses for a, a building as well, um, a, a particular office that is honoring and recognizing the, the complete change in the landscape for employment.
0: mentioned um, Mapper, the Metro Area Planning Agency. That's right. You had a, a role there before joining Lamp-Ryneerson, and uh, you were integral in sort of leading work around the Heartland Vision 2050. What was Heartland Vision 2050, and what is the intention?
1: Yeah, the Heartland 2050 vision was a, well, it still is. Um, you know, It was looking at this eight county Omaha council bluffs, Iowa metro area that has urban and suburban and rural community. There's enough economic and commuting interplay between the, all of those communities that, so this is really a region and the region uh, needs to can thrive together. If we, Coordinate and share uh, amongst our counties and communities our pieces of the pie for how it grows. Um, So instead of competing with one another for employers to come to town, you know, we just want to get some. We just want you to land somewhere in the region, and you know, the distribution of the benefits of that will be shared throughout the region, much like the Chamber of Commerce thinks about it in the regional standpoint as well. So. Um, that 2050 vision was really the main foundation of it was uh, just looking at demographic changes moving ahead and that change in age and ethnicity, the, the makeup of who is leading in our community uh, today versus the likely percentage of, you know, like, for instance, by like 2042, Douglas County was a majority of people of color. So if that's the case, that's 21 years from now, if you just looked at the annual income, the household value, I mean, the the value of a home, percentage of people that own a home and a vehicle or have access to other modes of transportation, we have this imbalance and we need to think about changing how we allocate our resources to reflect that. So we needed a vision to do it. And so the vision really called for um, a strong kind of urban environment that um, was connected through a bike system and um, transit system that connected what was already here. And so that a more efficient use of the land, the resources we have versus growing out, we want to grow up and that kind of infill development style. While at the same time, ensuring that there's uh, plenty of access for affordable housing and housing types. So it doesn't have to either be an apartment or a single family home. You know, there could be townhomes and more diversity of housing type. And that uh, the the allocation of resources and, and how we make decisions would be more reflective of the community in the future. So by bringing those voices to the center today, by being a Part of helping make the solutions for the future, so that that's what the vision was about. So the main, the the large components of that vision were around land use and transportation. So how do we develop land or or manage the resources we already have, and then connect them through uh, infrastructure? Infrastructure can mean parks, it can mean trails and waterways, um, but certainly bus and you know biking as well. And some vehicle transportation.
0: What are some of the main misconceptions that people had have about that vision, but also perhaps more broadly, about what you do as a planner?
1: That um, particular vision, and I think there were some misconceptions initially that it was an agenda by um, you know an administration, the Obama administration at the time that was taking away private land and private property with this kind of behind the scenes policy, you know, effort. This Heartland 2050 was really about changing policy and incentives away from private ownership and more into shared public resources. And some of that is kind of the case and would prefer, you know, the vision does have an agenda for public investment in these institutions and, and, um, or collective ownership of how we move around the city or who has access to land and such. Um, so those are some of the misconceptions. I think they've, the vision's done a really good job of involving the community and showing that there's really nothing, you know, there's nothing secretive or a hidden agenda here. It really is about the community having a role in, in helping um, shape it. And there's uh, plenty of folks to help make those decisions and be a part of it from uh, the general public to, you know, utility companies and natural resource districts and the school district and the universities and business, um, that everyone has a, a role in helping implement some of what's in that vision. You know, there's the hol- like the holidays recently, Thanksgiving and such, and um, some people, like, what, so what? what, I don't really know what to tell my family what you do, Jeff, like you're a planner, I don't know what that is. <laughs> And it's like, there's enough of it. Planning is something that I think is, if I want to think about research and data and analysis of data, I can do that. If I want to observe people and how they use a space, I get to do that. Um, If I want to just help design and create a space, you know, I get to do that. Um, I want to make maps and look at the, you know, how, data is displayed spatially. I get to do that. Like it, it it's so multidisciplinary. And the type of planning that I do, you know, land use and you know transportation and, and uh, parks and open space is much different than an environmental planner, someone that's or someone that's thinking about the water system and how we make sure that we're not contaminating environments with development. So the planning is very broad, I guess what I'm getting at, but it's a mix of social science and you know physical science and geometry and math and anthropology and, and design principles) <music>
0: I'm not sure that any of our discussion really matters when is it all already too late given the implications of climate change? And are we just tinkering around the edges of planning our lived spaces when there are much larger forces that make that seem like tinkering?
1: Part of planning to me is about a real belief in people and that there, a, a better world is possible, like being optimistic about that. So that's what is in my mind, is that a better world is possible and designing with nature versus uh, against it. I think a lot of planning is driven by values and understanding what a community values or helping elevate the values that may be at uh, their education um, and people's experience you know, the values, there are some that are on the margins that a small minority of people may value bringing those closer to the center. And so I think about our opportunities to change what we value, which is a complex challenge to change. But I think what we value is what attracts development and um, how we think about assets. And so valuing the natural systems that are there today and the ecosystem and such and that these spaces of untouched undeveloped land is an asset that we can value and we need to conserve and um, preserve as much as possible and if we change that assumption that land is only there to be extracted for financial gain a short-term gain and instead value and see our role as being a a good steward of the land. It's not ours. The thing about planning is it can be long-term. We can think about things in 20, 30-year increments, not next quarter. So we have to think about the long-term consequences of our actions. And so planning often has um, sort of had this role of like, hey, we told you this in the 70s, And no one listened. So, will you listen to us in the 2020s? I hope so, but with you know, I'm not so certain that people will because they are motivated by next quarter's results um, and next the the next election. But all that to say, I really don't think it's too late. Um, My our daughter is 10 years old, and she and her friends started this little group called She. Stand they, supporting healthy environments, and they just decided that they were going to, you know, starting with like a trash cleanup, they were going to be concerned about the environment. And uh, one of their friends moved to uh, North Carolina, and this they meet over Zoom today, and they still do this sustainability thing. You know, they're kind of playing around, but they kind of, to them, it's just an assumption that we need to care about this, and it's just how they operate. And I don't think they're unique. a lot of young people that they've only lived in a world that is in kind of crisis and with the climate so that's what gives me hope is the young people and that those young people aren't just seen as citizens that of the future and you know like but that they actually have pretty good ideas today and if we have a reverence for young people and you know take their ideas seriously and try to do our best to implement because we need to be good, need to be responsible with what we have today because they will be responsible for it in 20 years from now. That's probably what gives me hope is the young people that care about. And that's not a novel idea, but I'm certainly inspired and encouraged by that.
0: It makes me want to ask you though, to go back and maybe even think about your own childhood and what was it in your life? that made you appreciate the way we occupy spaces and, and maybe the way spaces influence us that motivated you, that gave you the ambition to be invested in this kind of planning?
1: When I was young, um, we, we lived next to my grandparents and my, my grandmother didn't drive. And so she kind of watched me during the day And we would walk everywhere. She worked for um, some kind of at a senior center. And she seemed to know everyone in the community. So I would, I was just tagging along, but I, you know, I recognized that I was observing her connection to the place. And because she, I mean, she had to walk to get everywhere. So um, that meant her world was pretty small in a sense, um, lived in a central Nebraska and it's grand Island, a small town. Um, so I, like, I think about my world as a child as kind of within like a one mile circle. And I you know, can think about the, the parks across the street and the parks that would play on, on our way to, you know, where she would run errands and, um, the neighbors and that, sense of connection to a place that she had clearly, and that I was able to be a part of. And so that has motivated the way I think about space is these opportunities for, if you want to connect with the natural world, you can do that where you can feel that sense of wonder and smallness like, you know, Stardate does for you. or you like literally want to connect with people. Like you, you have those opportunities to see others at, you know, at eye level and at a very slow pace, like, you know, within three miles an hour, if that, you know, that's kind of traditional walking, like, you know, pace, um, that you can do that and have those chance for interaction and it, and acknowledgement of another person that is also in this space and we're in it in a, very like kind of romantic way like we are in it together and i have to physically like literally see you face to face maybe from across the street or we run into each other and even just greet each other um that as much as we can create those opportunities that's what i want to be a part of
0: It sounds to me as if, in some ways, you're describing a lived experience in your own early life that is informing your response to the question, how should we live now? What are the trends, what are the movements that you see that probably many of us don't see because we're not in your field, but what is happening now that is going to shape the future of how we live in our spaces?
1: So the, you know, the longevity of people, the baby boomer generation that will live longer and occupy a greater percentage of the overall population by like kind of 20 year age cohorts, if you you broke it down um, in those uh, sections. And that means the way like we think about the habitable spaces can they live here in this house until they you know die? Can they move about and have mobility within the house, within their block, within the neighborhood? You know, so I think about the the housing situation from being concerned about the aging population. So that means the the ability to have spaces that uh, and services that a day-to-day kind of your your day-to-day needs can be met by transit or walking because at some point you're going to lose your ability to operate that vehicle and it's not safe to do that. Um, so that's the thing I think about. It's on the edge right now of you know people are some people are talking about AARP and others and I have certainly been talking about it for a long time but it's it's now becoming much more of a emerging topic that the general public I don't think about it as much but it is something that is being seriously considered. I think another kind of trend is well how to say it, like, Housing affordability is something that now it's it's been an issue for a long time in, in certain communities that have been you know left out. And um, but now it's a topic of casual conversation that you know so and so's son is was looking to buy a house and they couldn't afford they couldn't find a house that was affordable for them. And so now it's become much more personal instead of just a, at a macro level or seeing on a graph. the percentage of people that aren't able to afford a home. Now it's like definitely like you have to deal with it. And when you have to deal with it, when you have someone in your family that can't afford to buy a house, uh, you start to ask questions as to why and you see how complex it can be. But it's complex because we have this assumption that land has only a monetary value that is worth more in some places versus other places. And that's where I think it goes back to changing the way we value and attribute financial value to a natural thing of land, because that people say the land cost is just too high. We can't put a house that's affordable on a lot that we had to had to pay two hundred thousand dollars for. You know, an affordable house for new construction in our metro area for a median income. Yeah, we need that house to be like $120,000 kind of all in. And when you have to buy the lot for $200,000, you you can't make that happen. So just changing the incentive and how we attribute value to land is something we have to change soon because that housing affordability issue is very real and only getting worse.
0: We can't end on the word worse. Let me ask um, sort of by way of closing, we talked about Medellin in Colombia as as a place that, really stands out to you. Um, So maybe you've already answered the question, but I'm I'm wondering for you, if you could be anywhere in the world right now that really seemed to fit you um, spatially, if there was somewhere in the world you could be that just felt right as a human being existing in the world, where would that perfect place be for you?
1: Honestly, Omaha, like here. um, I think because of the sense of rootedness that I have in this place and the relationships that make it, there are so many other places that have more effective public transit. You can get around by a bike. You can walk to great neighborhoods. I'm lucky that I live in a neighborhood that is within walking distance of a number of services I need or to downtown. Um, and not everybody has that, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, that matters, but it's the relationships and friends that I have and the sense that there are good people that are trying to solve these complex issues in Omaha every day that I feel a sense of um, I feel a sense of connection and responsibility to help be a part of that as well and if I move somewhere else while I would get these like I said maybe uh, mountains or you know great uh, water features or whatnot but um, we have our best resources are each other and that's what makes a space unique and uh, so that's what I have and that's why I would not move away to anywhere else
0: My guest today has been Jeff Spees, Senior Planner at the civil engineering and landscape architecture firm Lamp-Rineersen. Jeff, thank you so much for spending time with us on the show today.
1: Stuart, thank you.
0: That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community and more. Oh, mm-hmm.